0: Again, my name is Greg, if I haven't mentioned that yet, I'm one of the pastors here at the house, and we are in a series called The First Gospel. The first gospel is uh, the gospel according to Mark. It's not the first as you open the the scriptures, but it is the first one that was written, and so that is why we are going through this, and so we're just going to jump right into the scriptures. Uh, Scott, it's funny that you mentioned how the sermon should go today, because I was telling someone before the service I got a, a real heady, heady sermon for you today with all the kids present, so can't wait to see how it goes. So let's open up the scriptures to the book of Mark. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you don't have uh, one of your own Bibles, we have uh, copies, hard copies out on the bookshelf. You can take one of those home with you. And otherwise, just download it from a digital app store. And it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So if you see any of those, you're in the right neighborhood. We're going to be in Mark 3, and we have a tradition of giving the scriptures our full attention while we read them. We can do that any number of ways, but if you'd like, you can stand with me as you are able as we read from the scriptures. This is Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bunerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said, to the, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and, and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. Let us pray. God of every tribe, every tongue, every color, every nation, we thank you for the scriptures that we have them that they've been put together, that they have persisted throughout the millennia, that we can read them, that we can learn from them. And today I pray that whatever you have for us to learn, I pray that it would stick, that it would become a part of the framework of our faith, that our faith would become stronger as we become more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all. You can have a seat if you were standing. All right, so in the space of 10 verses between verse 13 and verse 23... We have five firsts, five firsts in 10 verses. Verse 13, the first mention of a mountain. Verse 14, first mention of the 12 disciples. Verse 19, first mention of betrayal. Verse 21, first mention of his family. Verse 23, first mention of teaching in parables. And here's here's the deal. I'm only going to talk about two of those. So today might be one of those days where you might have more questions at the end than you did at the beginning because I'm not going to address most of what I read. But I wanted to make sure that I read so that you can see the context of what's happening. He, there's so much happening, and if I don't cover all of it, you can just blame Mark for shoving too much into small sections. When we look at how dense this section is, how much Mark is pack, packing in, again, we're reminded that he's an author. He's trying to communicate things with the way that he is writing it. And whether we mention that every week or not, I don't want us to lose track of that. Mark is an author. Mark is an author. He's thinking about how he's telling this story. He's writing things next to each other and crafting this story intentionally. He's building motifs, layers, themes. One way he does this is that sometimes he'll take similar events that may have actually happened days or weeks or months apart, and he'll put all of those together. Okay? For instance, last week, when Pastor Jen read five stories of conflict, it would be easy for us in our modern mind to think, man, like just every single thing that happened to Jesus on that day was just all about conflict. Man, that sounds like a really bad day. But if you read, if you take your time, if you slow down and you read intentionally, Mark makes it clear that these things did not all happen in the same day. He actually writes this. He says, he tells the first story, and then he says, a few days later. And then he says, once again. Then he says, one Sabbath. And then he says, another time. There's space between these stories and he's grouping them together to do something that authors do to build themes, tension, momentum a sense of movement in this story and today's section is no different he stacks all these firsts on top of each other so that we feel like this ball that just started rolling isn't slowing down he wants us to feel like Everything is happening all at once. Like it's building speed and going deeper with every single verse. And so he stacks events. Another way that he does this is with stacking of meaning, with the layering of stories, okay? It's a common Bible writing technique. It's kind of what I was talking about the first week of this series. It's common when you read the scriptures, especially scriptures that were written with a Jewish background, for the story that you're reading to be intentionally calling back to other stories that you've already read or that they expect for you to know. One of the ways he does this in today's passage is when he mentions a mountainside and the 12 disciples for the first time. I'll read that part again. It says this. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed 12 all right, so we're thinking about Mark like an author. We're thinking about how authors have editors, yeah? Like we think, okay, I want to I wanna make the best decisions with every word that he use. When Mark wrote this, he doesn't have to say it this way. Mark doesn't have to mention a mountainside if he doesn't want to. He could have just said, and then on Tuesday, Jesus selected his team. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He points out where they are for a reason. And he does mention the 12, and he does mention a mountainside. And so we should ask, why? Why is he saying Jesus went up mountainside? Now, let's think like we are a 1st century Israelite, okay? 2000 years ago, let's jump into our way back machine. If we lived back then and we were reading this for the first time and we see a spiritual leader going up a mountainside, who might we think of? Maybe David hiding in the mountainside from King Saul. Jesus, we know, is from the Lion of David. Maybe we could think of Elijah meeting God on the mountainside after he ran for his life from Jezebel. We know that John the Baptist is like an Elijah that was coming before as a forerunner. Maybe we think of Abraham taking Isaac up the mountainside, wondering how God was going to provide a replacement to save his son from being sacrificed, but the strongest connection would be Moses. Why? Because Moses is the one that led the Israelites out of Egypt. And before they built the tent of meeting, which is where Moses would meet, or the tabernacle, which is where all the priests would meet, Moses would do what? He would go up the mountainside to meet with God. And the mountain is where he would get the law from God, bring it back down and teach his people. And so when we see this idea that Jesus goes up the, the side of the mountainside, he chooses 12, he says, I give you authority to go down the mountainside. We're getting this motif from the Old Testament of Moses receiving the law and then giving it to the people, the same law that these people had been following for the 1,300 years leading up to that moment. So if you're a first century Jew and you read that a spiritual leader went up a mountainside, Moses is probably on your mind. Now, it doesn't mean that Mark is making this up just so that we'll think of Moses. That's not what we're saying, okay? Jesus went up a mountainside. He's not pretending like he did. But if all this is about is information, if all the Bible is about is giving us information about Jesus having disciples, then Mark doesn't have to tell us how and where he chose them. He just has to say that he chose them. He adds the detail, A, because it happened, and because it leads the reader deeper into the story. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So then, when Mark says that he chose 12 disciples, what might that remind us of? He had 12 tribes of Israel, right? If any point Mark wrote down and then Jesus bought a dozen donuts, he wants us to think of 12 tribes of Israel. If if any gospel writer refers to something as 12, the point is that this is somehow a reference to the 12 tribes because Israel having 12 tribes is a core element of who they are and who they were. And so now Mark shows these two things together. The mountain... And the Twelve, I think, because Moses was the first person to lead the Twelve Tribes. Moses is the one that led the Twelve Tribes out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he lived with them for the next 40 years on their way to the Promised Land. And Mark is showing how Jesus is leading these people into a new Promised Land. But wait, there's more. Because if you read the Bible, if you're familiar with it, or if you're thinking like a first century Israelite, maybe you remember that while Moses led them out of Egypt, that Moses didn't get to lead them through the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. Do you guys remember that? Moses gets to the end of his life. He dies. He hands over authority and leadership to Joshua. And Joshua is the one that gets to lead them into the land Moses was the first one to lead the 12 but Joshua was their leader when they stepped into the land and received their inheritance when for the first time listen think about this when for the first time in the history of this people that all 12 tribes had a home and a land to call their own because the 12 tribes started as what they started started as brothers they just started as the children of Jacob, right? They were the brothers of Joseph. And they went to Egypt as one large family because of a famine. And 400 years later, they leave as tribes of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. So when Joshua takes them into the land, it is the first time that they get to step into the fullness of who they are. It's the first time that as tribes they get to realize their freedom. It's the first time as tribes they get to step into their identity. It's the first time that happens in the history of their family. And if you are a first century Jew, you're thinking of Moses. You're thinking about the Exodus. You're thinking about the 12 tribes. You're thinking about Joshua. You're thinking about the promised land. And if you're reading this back then, you're thinking that you would not be calling Jesus, Jesus. Stay with me. If you are a Jew in the first century and you're reading this, You're thinking that if you're Jewish, you would have said his name a little differently. And when you said his name, and when you read this story, it would have connected the dots differently than it does for us English speakers. What do I mean? See, we call Jesus, Jesus. Right? Everyone's familiar with that? Because during translations, his Hebrew name had a sh in the middle of it had a sh sound, but Greek didn't have a sh in their alphabet. And so in the Greek, when it was translated, the sh became a s. Okay? And then his name in Hebrew ends with an a sound. But in Greek, it was considered feminine to put the a sound at the end of a word. And so they put in s sound at the end of the word, because that was the masculine way of saying it, and they didn't want to confuse people about who he was. And then, in Hebrew, his name starts with a sound. But later, in German, their J also made a sound, and so it often got transliterated as a J, but we English speakers, the J sounds make a what sound? A ja sound. And when you put all that together we end up in english saying jesus but in the first century they called him yeshua and everywhere ooh everywhere else in the bible that we find the name yeshua that name is translated joshua in this one moment That Mark has written down. Mark shows us a spiritual leader go up a mountainside like Moses, and then like Joshua, Yeshua, point them into the promised land that is the new kingdom of God. Do we need to get the mop for anybody's brains? (laughs) Like, guys, it's two verses. It's two verses. So what do we do with this? How do we participate with this? I'm gonna keep it short and simple because we've got the kids with us and it's already been pretty heady. Guys, be curious. Just be curious. Like I would not recommend everybody watch this show. It's called Ted Lasso. It has a lot of swearing in it. But there's this scene where Ted's in a pub and he's with the owner of the soccer club And she's intimidated by her ex that that had owned the club previously. And he's trying to manipulate the situation. And so Ted says, hey, if I beat you in darts, then you have to... I think he says you can't show up to any of the games the rest of the season, if I remember it correctly. And so Ted doesn't look like he plays darts very much. And this guy is pompous. And he just starts hitting everything that he wants to hit. And it gets down to this point where Ted needs an exact number of points on the dartboard in order to win. And he goes into this monologue and he said, you know, when I was a kid, I was bullied a lot. And one day, I remember driving and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman that said, be curious. He said, and I realized that all those people that gave me such a hard time, they just weren't curious. Because if they were curious... If people like you were curious, and he hits a bullseye, he says, you might ask me a couple questions like, hey, Ted, do you play darts much? (laughs) And then he hits another one, and then he, he says, and I would have told you yes every Sunday until I was 16, and he hits the winning shot. We need to be curious when we look at the scriptures. We need to ask something as simple as, why did he mention the mountainside? Why does he say that there's a boat? Why does he say that his family came to get him and thought that he was out of his mind? Why does it say that the religious leaders came down? Why does it say, be curious? Because when this was written, there was so much more packed into it than we would see with our English-speaking American eyes today. But it's there. If you will look in the Holy Spirit of God, will help you see. Amen? Let's pray. God, again, I thank you for your scriptures. that They are so full of who you are. They are constantly pointing us to who you are, but not just who you were in that year and in that day, but to who you've always been throughout the whole story that we call existence. Would you soften our hearts in such a way that our minds would want to know more. And I pray that you would move in our hearts, that that we would always look for the work that you are doing. We would always want to participate with it. That your yes would always be our yes. Amen.